Let's begin with this morning's sermon entitled, The Egg in My Leg. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the way you've led for the past several years in your providence, helping me discover and learn how to use resources that are truly helping the gospel to reach and be preached to the ends of the earth. And Father, I am eager, along with my brothers and sisters, to begin. Father, we begin this evening, and again, Father, we entreat for those that have been invited, the postcards, the invites, that um, it will be your spirit, Lord. We need you now to honor our efforts. We can sow seeds, we can water it, but your word tells us that you are the only one that can cause it to grow. So we place that in your hands. And Father, we pray for the rest of this series that they would honor you and be of tremendous blessing to all that come. And bless us this morning, Father, as we will look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Egg in My Leg is a sermon title that I got on Tuesday as I began convicted that I needed to skip this sermon uh, at this time uh, since it's already been available um, through the Oakwood Church. Um, I'm going to tell you this story by telling you about a place called Sedanit. Uh, I'm getting old. I forget if I tell you stuff now. Uh, I don't know if I've told you this story. <laughs> Um, if I didn't, here it is. And if I did, okay, review. Serenid stands for Centro de Rehabilitación para Niños Drogadictos. It's a Spanish title, which means Center for Rehabilitation for Drug Addicted Children. And is a branch off of ADRA, which is an Adventist organization akin to the Red Cross. Um, and through this agency, there are many things that we do to help humanity, as we will be studying in our Sabbath school after the sermon. And this center basically would um, have a social worker on staff and other uh, para-ministry resources to identify and rescue children living on the, in the streets of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. The majority of these kids, all of them actually were homeless, of course, they're living on the streets, and the vast majority of them were addicted to glue sniffing. Um, that model glue that we used to build planes. Uh, they would be singing in buses. They would be singing in the streets. Some of them would learn how to shoot, sign, um, shine shoes. But every penny they made would go into this drug, um, into this buying glue. And they would squirt it into a paper bag, inhale it for a little bit, and pass out. And that's how they would try to escape the pain of their parents being alcoholics and prostitutes and drug dealers and having been abandoned and neglected by the grandparents and the parents who died of AIDS and those nightmares. That's how they try to cope with life. And so Adra, through Serenade, did an amazing job and God in his providence landed me there. I was not planning to go to this place, but I praise the Lord that in his providence, he led me there. You may have not known that there was buildings in the midst of these mountains, but that's where the center for rehabbing these six to 10 year olds, I believe that was the age that we treated. Um, and I was there originally supposed to be translating letters to look for sponsors and I ended up being the chaplain, <laughs> the chaplain and almost the father figure for these children. These are some of the pictures. I'm so glad I took my camera with me. I often get very nostalgic and at times teary-eyed as I remember their stories and how my role shifted and how God used them to convict me that I was being embarked in a journey of ministry. Um, the top picture is uh, two of the children, the kid with the light blue shirt, his, name is, his nickname is Pachin, I cannot remember his real name. He was six years old, he was the youngest. 
of the bunch, and he, you could tell when Pacino was around, he always reached for an adult hand. He, he, he just craved for the sense of protection and someone watching over him. And they were all f basically female staff. And so when I showed up, it was uh, an instant um, male role model thing for me. And everybody wanted to be on my team, in the soccer teams. Nobody wanted to be in the social workers team because she was a woman. So it was a fight of who would get to be with me. And it just opened my eyes to why Satan tries to knock down men, try to neutralize us, not successful-wise, not that we can't pay the bills, spiritually. How Satan tries to sterilize males, men, fathers, from being spiritual leaders, which is what our kids crave and need the most. Those kids bonded with me in a matter of weeks because of this huge absence of a male spiritual leader in their lives. It wasn't the food, it wasn't the clothing, it's that someone listened and played with them, gave them attentions, attentions that their own fathers were too busy or too dysfunctional to ever give. So there, I discovered a lot. God has done a lot through this experience for me over the years, helped recalibrate my priorities, and I hope that you're listening, dads. More than you helping your kids pay for their college, your sons especially need to know that they have a spiritual father. This center was intentionally built way up in the mountains because they had tried to do this before closer to the city and the kids would run away. So they were so far up in the mountains that you had to do one of these to get there. You know what I'm talking about? Hitchhike, truck drivers. Whenever we had to go shopping, I, I accompanied the ladies that did the shopping for the kitchen one, one morning. And I had to get up at three in the morning to get up to the road at four because that's the time when the truck drivers would be driving with the produce from the farmers into the city for the market. And so you had to do one of these and hopefully if you brought children along with you, you got picked up faster because of pity. And it would be a free ride on the back of the truck. And I rode in back of trucks all the way into the city, uh, taking children that needed to see a dentist. And the social worker would have to go to three or four different dental offices begging for pity. Or doctors that were willing to examine these children for free. Because there, no, there was no funding. The funding, most of it got, got spent in the food. There's so much need out there. Our Sabbath school quarterly is amazing. And I hope that it is stirring our hearts. So because it was so far out, supplies were difficult to maintain and especially uh, medical supplies. And um, I believe Tito is in the, the previous picture, the bottom picture in the right, the, the, your right. Um, we had gone on a Sabbath hike and we found a papaya tree full of ripe papayas. Have you guys ever had ripe papayas before? I don't think none of us have because they don't grow in Michigan. So we get them from Mexico <laughs> or California. They're delicious when they're right off the tree. It's like candy. It's like candy. And so they went, climbed the tree, and we got, I don't know how many papayas. Each kid had their own, and I had like two. Um, and Tito is there. Um, right here. This is Tito. 
right there. And um, Tito got bit by a bug. And that's when I discovered how sparse medical supplies this place had. We had some iodine in a bottle that was left by the last missionary group that had showed up and some rubbing alcohol that they also had left behind. And then we just had salt. Maybe some gauzes from an open package that had been don excuse me, donated. That was it. And uh, Tito got bit, I don't know what kind of a bug it was, but that thing got bigger. It was red, the leg began to get hot. He began to limp because he was in the front of your tibia. There's a big muscle right there that every time you walk, you lift the front of your foot. And so it contracts with every step you make. And if you have something there, the size of a ping pong ball, you can't walk. And Tito loved to play soccer and with Tito would sit down, we knew it was serious. It didn't stay the size of a ping pong ball. It got to the size of a tennis ball. It looked like a volcano underneath his kneecap. And we didn't know what to do. Um, the social worker had taken already some children to the city. And sometimes they would stay two or three days. They would stay in the conference office until they were able to return to all the kids were cared for. So we were stuck in the mountains with Tito and we were afraid that this thing, at that time I had no massage therapy training or no nursing training. Actually, this is what awakened my need of how useless my life had become by just playing video games and watching movies. I had become a useless human being. Those skills don't help you in life. At all. So I regretted having been in the United States, having gone to college and dropped out. And now I was a useless person in this time of need. So to the rescue came a very unexpected, oh, did it disconnect? Okay. To the rescue came, there was a gentleman that oversaw the maintenance of the campus and he was also a builder. And his son, Juan, who was 17 year old, he saw, he came back from, from working and he saw what happened and he said, I know what needs to happen. This is what I need. I need a small, thin branch. So we went hunting for a small, thin branch, and a week and back, he said to Tito, put this in your mouth and bite it really hard. I'm gonna squeeze your leg. And Tito, at that point, couldn't walk. He couldn't even bear weight. And he didn't want no one touching his leg. But like I said, male figures were huge at this place. Juan, a 17 year old, was almost, I was 27, 26 at that time. And um, I told Tito, you need to let Juan do this. And he obliged. Two older men that he respected. So Juan began to squeeze from the outside part in massaging it and squishing it and squishing it. And of course, Tito is here starts to roll. All the kids are like cringing. And uh, of course he's screaming it's with a stick and that stick is bending. And the stuff's coming out and as a nurse, I would love to tell you the texture, color and all that stuff. <laughs> but I know not, not many of you guys are nurses and you may not appreciate all those details. So I'll skip, okay? Um, it got to the point where all that was coming out was blood. The volcano had decreased in size. 
And Juan kept squeezing. And Tito kept saying, Yeah! Enough! And um, Juan stopped. And Tito said, Please, no more. That's it. No more. And Juan said, No. He said, Let's make a deal. I'm trying not to squeeze too hard. But let's make a deal, Tito. I'm going to squeeze the hardest and the longest just once. And you endure it. Is that a deal just one more time? But it will be hard. Tito thought about it. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So Juan wiped his hands so that he could get, get grip with the skin and squeezed hard. Hard and he wouldn't stop and the pressure would just go up and up and up and up until he said, give me a gauze, I need a gauze. And when we gave him the only gauze that we had left at that time, because we had used it up to wipe off the other stuff, <clears throat> he went like this and stopped squeezing and said to Tito, this is why I couldn't stop squeezing. It was a small white oval in the midst of all the blood. You know what that thing was? An egg. It was a bug that bit him and laid an egg inside of him. And Juan said to Tito, if I would have stopped, you would have the same volcano in less than a week. And it would hurt more. It would get worse, because that thing was, is gonna grow inside of you. It could damage your muscles, it could mess you up. So that's why I couldn't stop squeezing Tito. And Tito, with his tears and his sniffles, looked at Juan and said, Thank you. Thank you for squeezing. Thank you for getting that out of me. You didn't know you had an egg in your leg, Tito. So we had this verse that James read for us. Very well-known verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Um, we're going to be looking at that verse. I want us to look at that verse in the context of Tito. This little story that I told you that really happened is a parable. Why was Tito willing to allow Juan to squeeze him one last time and hard? Number one, Tito knew Juan didn't put that egg in there. Juan did not cause this. Two, Juan was the only one willing to do this. I mean, Juan had all that stuff oozing over his fingers. There was no glove. There was no sterile technique here. This was out in the mountains. And I don't know if I would have been willing to have all that stuff on me that was inside Tito's leg. At least not at that time. But Tito knew he is committed. I'm seeing that he's not embarrassed or ashamed or disgusted of getting my mess in his hands so I can trust him. He cares for me. And the third thing was that long before Juan ever touched his leg, his that leg was already hurting. It was already throbbing. He couldn't even bear weight on it. So the reason Tito could tell Juan, go ahead and squeeze. I'll endure it. It's because I trust you. You didn't do this to me. You're the only one able and willing to do this for me. 
And if you don't, my situation doesn't get any better. It's already bad. In fact, this is the only better, best option that I have. You causing me to go through a temporary discomfort. So this verse, we know that all things work together for good, is a verse that has at times been misused, a lot of times been misused, misapplied, and because of that, the expectations have been frustrated. Because we don't spend time to think about what it means when Paul says God causes all things to work together for what outcome? For what outcome, church? We don't, so what's good, right? I got the job. That, that must be the good outcome. Maybe not. That I get healed. That has to be the good outcome, right? Maybe not. We struggle with understanding this passage because this whole passage, through the Holy Spirit, Paul has jam-packed a whole bunch of principles for us to understand ourselves and to understand God. First of all, the verse says that we know that not most or some, but how much? All things. So let me ask you a question. Has all things that are supposed to happen to you in your life, has all those things happened to you already? Are things still happening to you? So what does it mean that Paul says that all things work together for good? It means all things. Things that still have yet to happen. Still things have not happened in your life that God will use for the final outcome for your good. Your eternal good. And as humans, as we can look at ourselves almost as children that can only see, can only see beyond 80, 90 years of existence, it is difficult for us to compare our good to what God defines as good, the everlasting God, the, one that, the God that sees the end from the beginning. What He defines as good a lot of times may not be the same good that I'm thinking about. And so we get angry at God, and we get distrustful at God, and we say, enough, enough of this already. you got to stop. What's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Just stop. Just leave me alone. So we stop praying. We stop coming to church. We stop doing anything that hints as getting close to God. I learned a lot from that experience with Tito and Juan. Because there are things in our lives that hurt already. And when God tries to cause things and bring other things, why does this stuff happen, right? Why does God allow this to happen to me? Out of all the people, why this at this time? God, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Not now. Not this. Not me. So it is to our advantage, and I'm inviting you to examine what are your definitions of good and to allow God, if necessary, to expand, deepen, and possibly correct what would be the greatest good in your life. I thought about what are the things that bring pain into our lives? 
things that we don't want people touching us, touching those areas of our lives. Debilitating illnesses, divorce, and death. Those were the only thing, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive, we all have our experiences. But as I prayerfully thought, Lord, what are the common things that as I lived in Argentina, in Bolivia, in Pennsylvania, in California, in Ohio, in Michigan, I've been to Lebanon, I've been to, I see humans now as so identical. We may speak different languages, eat foods a little different, uh, dress a little different, but inside, underneath this little 5.5 millimeter layer of skin, we all are the same. Debilitating illnesses, broken relationships, and death. Paul says that God can make all things, all things that already hurt. And be careful, please do not misread or misunderstand or take more of that what I'm saying, but it's not that God has caused these things. God says that he hates divorce, so be there, I would be very hard-pressed to think that God caused the divorce. God's grace is there. He intervenes. He does not abandon people that experience divorce. Amen? He's definitely there. But he hasn't caused it. Just any less than Juan put that egg inside of Tito's leg. And it hurts. It hurts already. But the only one that can really do anything about that is God. And God, what he sometimes allows is for the pressure to increase for one purpose and one purpose only. God uses that which causes pain and suffering in our lives, listen to this, to bring to the surface, to my personal awareness, what I truly believe about him. This is the why. To the questions, Lord, why my child? It's one thing for us to have things happen to us, right? But when it happens to your kid, when it happens to your grandkid, what then? We have to grapple with not information about God, but what we truly believe about him in our lives. And there are different ways that we respond to these kind of things. Sometimes when death, debilitating illnesses, or broken relationships strike our lives, we may become angry. That's a very common way we respond. We get angry at God. We become, and I think it's worse than anger. I think God prefers anger than this one. Some of us may choose indifference. Indifference is very difficult. Indifferent people still come to church. They just never commit. It's almost like you don't divorce your spouse, you just don't talk to him. You just don't talk to her. And you're still there. And you're there to let that person know, I'm not talking to you. God did not cause your pain. God did not bring that heartache. What causes death is sin. We may think we know what we believe about God, 
my beloved church. But in the Bible, in your life experiences, the bitter truth is that few of us believe that God loves us. And God loves us too much to allow that egg of the lie about God to lie dormant inside of us and begin to cause infections of the soul that leads to indifference, distancing, and uncommitted lives. Though we may be coming to church, though we may be amicable toward church or amicable toward spiritual things, in my heart, I just never commit because these eggs of lies that I truly believe that I am not even aware are there come to the surface when God uses the painful things in life to bring these eggs to the surface. And, and with the eggs comes the other stuff, right? The other stuff that I didn't want to tell you about. There's a story in the Bible about a widow and a prophet. And we're just going to look at the first Kings 17, chapter 17, verses 8 through 24. We're not going to look at every verse for the sake of time. But, and now we're not going to look at John 11, 1 through 27. I'm going to invite you to study that out. Examine your own life in light of these passages. But in the story that we find in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24, and like I said, we're only going to be looking at excerpts. I'm going to extract things pertinent to what we are talking about here, how God does not cause pain, but he can cause all things to bring awareness to us about what we really hold truth to be true about God. And when we are confronted with that, then we can address it. Doesn't matter how much pus and blood came out of that wound. If that egg did not come out, that wound would never heal. And the lies that lie within our hearts, the lies that Satan has planted within us, will sap, will eventually kill all desires for God. So, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 24, we read the following. In verse 12, we're going to kind of just speed through this story. There's a famine in the land that the prophet Elijah has predicted. The brook has dried up. The crows are no longer bringing food. So God directs this prophet to the house of this widow, poor widow in Zarephath. And the widow is gathering sticks. And the prophet says, can I have, have a little water? And as, as she's about to get water, he says, can you also give me a little bread? And she says, listen, I would love to. But I only got enough flour, enough oil to make bread for her and who else in her life? Her son. Listen to this. I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and then expect what outcome after that is gone. Die. What is the outcome of that she knows will take place with her and her son? Church, you, you, it's, it, I don't want to just for the sake of redundancy. I want it to be ingrained in our mind because of what we're going to look at in just a little bit. If you ask this widow beyond this piece of bread that you're about to bake and eat, what lies before you, without hesitation, the widow will respond, what experience? Death. For myself and for who else? I don't understand this famine, but it's affected us, and it's gotten to the point where all I can look forward to for myself, because I'm older, I have more carbs, and she's not, of course, thinking about these, but the reality is, is that her son would die before her. 
she had more muscle tissue, more protein that can be broken down over time. Her son doesn't. She would have to bury her son. That is what she has to look forward to in life. And this prophet is asking for a piece of bread, and it's a struggle. Do I want to give this to you, or do I want to have this last bit of pleasure and enjoyment with my son? But I know that once the bread is gone, there's only one thing we can look forward to. The next verse we're going to look at is verse 14. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry. And you tell me, church, you know this story because we've been hearing it since we were little. What does the widow decide to do? He told the prophet, get out of here. You know, she went ahead and baked it by faith. And you have to think about this. She's going through a struggle. You have to mix the oil with the flour, knead it, flatten it. Put it inside the coals. It has to get cooked. And this whole time, she's salivating. Her son's like looking at that piece of bread. Mama, I'm hungry. What does that do to your, to your heart, mom, when your children are hungry, are starving? And they look to you and yank your skirt and look at you and say, Mommy, I'm starving. Mommy, can I have some of that bread? What does the widow do with that piece of bread? What prompts her to say, son, it's not for you. It's not for me. It's for that man. What prompts the widow to do this, church? You have to tell me. I want you to think. I'm not just going to... Well, what prompts her to do this? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. God's what? God's prophet. God's prophetic word. The, Elijah has said... That flour in that jar will not run out, and the oil will not run out either. I know, how much, I know that you know how much is in there, but I can tell you that the God of heaven will cause it to multiply. And she chooses to believe that. Tell her son, this loaf's not for us. The next one is. And we know what happens, and you have to think, I mean, let's put ourselves in that situation in which she feeds it, and Elijah eats, and she goes back trembling, Peeking and finds flour, finds oil. How do you think this mother is reacting at this time, at this experience? Do you think that, have you ever had tears of joy? Have you ever wept because there's a mixture of unbelief and belief and belief wins? And you're like, I'm so glad I took that step of faith. I cannot believe God is doing this. What he promises to do, he does. And she scoops out the flour and she scoops out the oil and she mixes it and, and pats it down and bakes it. And she's eating it, sobbing and laughing at the same time. Because now she knows we're going to eat again tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. But the story doesn't end here, church. Because if we were to go to that widow's house and say, how do you feel about Elijah's God? What do you think her response is going to be? Praise God. Is he a true God, widow? What is she going to say? Is he a faithful God? What is she going to say? Is he a good God? What is she going to say? Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. He dies. Verse 18. So the woman says to Elijah, the same widow says to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin 
to remembrance and to do what? This was her egg. This was her egg that was even blinded to her. This church, listen carefully, this is what all along she had been believing about God and she was unaware that it was there. But it came out with pressure. It came out with heartache. It came out with pain. Debilitating illnesses, divorce, and death. There are many others. But when these things strike our life, we have choices. One of the big choices is, what am I going to do with this? Will I reject God, distance myself from God, or will I allow this to examine me? Will I allow myself to hear what I am saying about God? Because whatever comes out of the mouth, that's what you believe. Because out of the abundance of the heart, what does the mouth do? This woman has been eating bread, miraculously being provided, just like the manna in the wilderness. And every day she is tasting of God's goodness. Every day she is tasting of that miracle, that sustaining power. But when her son gets sick and when her son dies, her conclusion, her interpretation of why this has happened is, who did this? Who killed her son? God, worse than that. Why is God killing her son? Why did God take her son's life? What kind of a God is this? Is this the God of the Bible? It's a verse in Ezekiel that says that the children shall not bear the sins of who? The fathers. And the fathers will not pay for the sins of the children. Each person bears their own guilt. That's the, the revelation that we get from the word of God. But this pagan woman did not have that. But you know who else believed like this? The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the disciples of Jesus. Every human being has the egg of sin in their soul. And until that egg gets squeezed out of us, you are spiritually sick with a terminal illness called sin. Sin is way more than behaviors. Sin is what you truly believe about God. And nothing will show it best than when the crisis hits our life. So far, church, are you following me? Are you, are you with me so far? So for, for me, for us, this brings a brand new panorama of how the Christian ought to relate to those debilitating illnesses, divorces experiences, broken relationship experiences, heartache experiences, and ultimately... To me personally, the big one, the big one that hurts, the big one that confronts every human being, the one that I have yet to see a human being that does not buckle under, is the experience of death. If it can hurt even believers, how much more individuals that have no hope? What do you truly believe about God? We express what we truly believe when tragedy and disappointment hits our lives. I know this from personal experience. It was uh, late 1990s. I was about to grad. I was one year away from graduating from high school. 1991. Premillennium. I feel almost like I'm talking about a dinosaur, right? 
And my parents get a phone call from the Allegheny East Conference saying that our case in immigration has been tumbled. Actually, that happened in 1984. And through many years of waiting, it finally was going to come to conclusion in about 1992-93. But in 1991, my parents got a call from the lawyer stating that their clerks noticed that I was going to turn 21 before the case, our case, was going to get final, final um, uh, approbation uh, from immigration, meaning by the time the green cards would get processed, I would turn 21 and something, something would happen when I turned 21, I would get automatically booted out from that application with my family. And I would have to start the process all over again, but as an adult, no longer as a dependent. We had to go to Argentina to get our green cards back then. Immigration was different. Now you can go to embassies and things, get those things locally here in the States. But back then you had to go to your country of origin, pick up your green cards there, and then come back to the States. So that meant that we could risk it, hope that someone in Argentina overlooked the fact that I turned 21. But if someone picked up on that, I would be denied my green card, and as my family would return back to the States, what would happen to me? I'd have to stay family would be broken. And when my parents got the news, my dad reacted with indifference. Passive aggressive. I'll still teach Sabbath school. I'll still sit in a pew. But he stopped leading our home spiritually. He stopped calling us for worship. My dad got very secular. Work, work, and entertainment. My mom, on the other hand, there was no question. She was shaking her fist at God. And the night they read the letter from the attorney, I was in their bedroom. And I didn't realize how much this night would impact me. Because I heard my mom for the first time. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. For the first time, I heard my mom tell God, I will never set foot in your church. I will never serve you again. Why are you doing this to my kid? I'm not perfect. Take it out on me. Why are you taking it on my kid? What kind of a God are you? My dad was a missionary. My mom had been a missionary with him. And all along, this is what they believed about God. And it affected them. They were legalists. It was not a relationship, it was an exchange. And I think this is what happened to the widow. She gave the bread and she got bread. So she's all grieving. I merited this. I deserve this. And many of us don't realize how quickly we, we, we revolt, revert to merit and not faith. And it works when things go well. I gave tithe. I got a raise. Hey. I feed the, the prophet. I get bread. Hey. I keep Sabbath. Now I get rest. Hey. If I'm faithful, God is faithful. I get promoted. I get jobs. Hey! 
But then when stuff happens and things fall apart, hey! And what you truly believe about God comes to the surface and what you believe about God is a big lie and it's affecting you. People will lose eternity because they've chosen to be lost. And people will choose to be lost because they will allow this lie about God to so consume them that they will prefer eternal death than eternity without God. That's what, that's, that's it. So, this is the, the big part of this narrative. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by doing what? Hold up a second. I could digest, I could understand, I can process a pagan Seraphonician woman saying these statements about God. She doesn't have Torah. She has never heard prophetic messages. But this is the prophet. This is the one that has said, the Lord has said no more rain and no more rain. And he believed it and he obeyed it. But even this prophet was not immune to the sophistry and to the brokenness of our sinful minds. So this is not the first time Elijah would get confronted with his wrong view of reality. Sometime later, God, he would be telling God, I'm the only faithful one here. And God would say, <clears throat> there's 7,000 others, my brother. Your, your experience is not unique, but you are unique to me. Your experiences as human beings, you're not the only one. But to me, I treat you as if you are the only one. But you don't believe that because you have this egg in your brain of sin. And I allow, yes, I permit sometimes, but there are stuff that is happening to you that I have nothing to do with. In fact, some of the painful stuff that happens to you is because you made bad choices. You've ignored me. And now you're reaping the consequences and blaming me for it. One of the most painful epiphanies a Christian, listen carefully, a Christian can have a baptized Christian can have, a baptized leader can have, is to come to the full awareness, I am clueless as to who God is. And I have been for years. And if it hadn't been for this debilitating illness, if it hadn't been because of Ariel's immigration status suddenly changing, my family would have been blindsided to what would have taken us out of the church anyways. This widow forgot that her destiny and her, she was okay with her son dying from eating that last loaf of bread. But all of a sudden her son dies and all of a sudden is, God is punishing me for my sins. What happened? Your son was going to die anyways were it not for God. Like I said, we don't have enough time this morning to spend and really juice up that story. I want to encourage you to spend time with the Word of God. We're going to conclude by this. Both Elijah gets a brand new revelation about God, the God he's serving as a prophet. And he says to the woman, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Not because of the miraculous daily provision of flour and oil. No, that didn't do it. Now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your, in your mouth is what? The truth. 
It's amazing that we would think this widow of Zarephath would have experienced conversion by daily partaking of miraculous bread. Of having had that experience convinced her and opened to her mind a brand new vision of God. But she could not understand grace. She reverted to merits. Because I gave a loaf, I got a loaf. Because I keep this prophet alive, God keeps me alive. We're even. No, we're not. You are alive this morning because God is gracious, loving, compassionate, and patient with you. Amen. That is it. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from where? Out of the mouth of God. But a prideful, haughty person says, that doesn't apply to me. I may need God possibly for the emergencies if my insurance doesn't cover everything. But I got my retirement planned out. I have made good choices. I am a good human being. What do I need God for? Those individuals are the hardest to save. They close their eyes to the big, huge volcano with that pus-producing egg. And the experiences that God brings to us are misconstrued and misunderstood. The wise of our pains and sufferings is to bring to the surface what we truly believe in. And if you want to look at the positive aspect of this, read John chapter 11 this afternoon. Because there you see a similar experience of the death of a loved one, but a different outcome. Something different comes out when that experience comes forth. But this morning, even a prophet needed to be corrected. So we're going to close this morning with this passage, church. Squeezing the egg in my heart. I talked about death, debilitating illnesses. But you know, even those things, the human heart can be so stubborn, so proud, that even under those circumstances, we can still buck God. We can still resist. We can still hunker down and say, I'm not budging. So God does not limit himself to only using, and he doesn't only use. Actually, he prefers a, another method. And Brian mentioned it. God's preferred method of squeezing that egg out of our soul, that lie about God, is utilizing his prophetic word. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25, it says this. Paul speaking and arguing in favor of the gift of prophecy, saying this. But if all church members, if the church, if there's a prophet in the church, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, that's the widow of Zarephath and Elijah, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. This is the part. And thus, the secrets of his heart are what? Revealed. Let me ask you this. this. Don't misunderstand what this verse is saying. This is misapplied sometimes by our Pentecostal brothers who say, I have a revelation from the Lord. Brother Jim Hamster has been stealing money. God has shown me. Repent. That's not the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is someone getting up front and beginning to speak 
based on previous revelation of God's character and speaking to the church and appealing to the church. And that message that is given in a very general way, that person is hearing it as if there's, that person is speaking to that person alone. Has that ever happened to you? This is the experience Paul is speaking, that a, an unbeliever, an uninformed person will come into the church and the prophetic gifts being man manifested, a prophetic message is being given, and that person feels like everything has gone black, there's a light shining on him, and this is the result, that the secrets of his heart are revealed, not to the church, but to who? His, himself. I've never seen this inside of me. I thought I was a believer. But I am a doubter. I thought I was committed, but I am so compromised. I thought I was a good person. I was blind, but now I see. That's a stanza of what him? Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But how can you be saved when you don't believe you're lost? How can God heal your eyes? When you're telling him, I see already. When you don't. And so, falling on his face, what will be the outcome? He will do what? Worship God. Because that egg of the lie about God has been squished out by the painful experience of hearing to himself, revealed to himself, the lukewarm uncommitted, worldly, secular stuff that's inside of me and it has a reason. Underneath all of that is a lie about who God is and I believe it and I don't even know it's there. So, what is the title of our series going to be? You know what's going to be the heart of every night's message? What's going to be happening every night? What kind of messages are going to be given? And if you think, I've heard those already, I can stay home and watch football. You are depriving yourself of hearing something that will bring healing to your soul. Listen, listen, listen. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard it. Every time you hear it again, it will change you. Every time. Because the things that you needed to hear the last time you heard it are different than the things you need to hear this time around. It's not just for the uninformed. It's not just for the worldly. If the prophet Elijah needed correcting about what he believed about God, how about you and I? Do I need to hear it again? So do not let the enemy deceive you into thinking, I've been to Pastor Rod's, they were nice. So I already know that's Satan whispering to you. You need to be here. You need to be here and hear all of them. Because it is when the gift of prophecy, when the prophetic messages are uttered in the church, that you will come to know secrets about your hearts that you did not know about yourself. And God is an awesome God. He will not divulge those secrets publicly. He will reveal it to the one person that matters most, to you. And He will lead you to an experience of worshiping God.
Do you want this experience? There's only one preferred way by God. Because we don't always go through debilitating illnesses. Our marriages may still be intact. And we may still be young and full of life many years ahead. So God does not limit himself to those experiences. What God prefers and what he continually seeks to use is his prophetic messages that he's given to his church. It is to your blessing for you to be here and here. Lord, I'm confident that what was needed to be heard has been heard. And Father, there's something sobering in the book of Revelation. Every time you speak to the church, you close with that statement. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you're not speaking about our ability to hear audibly. You are speaking about our hearts. How have I responded to this message, Lord? How am I responding to your searching high? Lord, because you're merciful, penetrate, put pressure. We need to have the lies that we've come to believe about you to be squeezed out of our soul and nothing that you've designed in love for us will be as efficient and powerful as the gift of prophecy. And even this morning, Lord, we've experienced that conviction. So I pray for those, Lord, that are saying yes, but I pray more for those that are saying no. I pray, Father, for those that are hardening their hearts even now. Father, save us. Save us mostly from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.